Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. Welcome to episode number 180 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. On this installment, I'm pleased to welcome back Graham Lampkin to the show. As some listeners may be aware, Lampkin has appeared on the show multiple times over the years where we've covered various aspects of his creative output, including his years being in the Shadow Ring, his work running Kai Records, and his various collaborative projects. He last joined me in 2017 when he came to Mankato to perform at a Freeform Freakout event. But with the release of his new deluxe edition box set called Solos, out now on blank form editions, seemed like a good time to check back in with Graham. On this episode, you'll hear my recent interview with Graham where we discuss different factors surrounding each of the four albums that comprise the Solos box set. We also branch out into his more recent collaborative albums that he's put out in the past couple of years. And in addition to this interview, you'll hear selections from each of the albums discussed, along with a few other recordings that are mentioned throughout. But before we get into those interview segments, I'll get things started off by playing an excerpt from his first solo album that he originally put out back in 2001. It's called Poem for Voice and Tape. This is the opening of part one of that release. Thank you. 
Could begin by just briefly discussing each of the albums that you know make up solos box set and sort of chronological order but but i thought before we do that i just wanted to ask you what it was like kind of going back through and revisiting and re-listening to these albums for this box set project i mean did you come away with any new perspectives on your work or did you find it to be a difficult, a sometimes tedious process of going back through all that material? Uh, well, 10 years of my life in a box, so there's a lot to go through. Um, yeah, I hadn't heard any of them for quite a, quite a few years. And uh, I, I guess if there was one takeaway from that, uh, revisiting them, was I saw... Um, more kind of flow between them than I realized was there at the time. Mm-hmm. There's little elements of one carry into the next and so on and so on. And uh, I guess uh, that, that that was the thing that surprised me about them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the booklet that is included that has these essays 
about each of the albums and there's photos and your artwork. It's, a, it's certainly a nice touch to this box set and an, an incredibly helpful in terms of just offering some new insight into your work from this period. But And one thing that I found interesting uh, that was a common link between all these albums was the Kurzweil K2500 keyboard. Uh, oh, that that you used to some extent on each of those solo albums and a keyboard that we should note that was right. gifted to you by a member of the Squirrel Nut Zippers, which is a surprise, right? So I guess I was I was shocked by that a little bit because I thought, especially those early, those first two records, I thought those were just pretty much like tape compositions. But the Kurzweil keyboard played a, a part in those. Yeah, it's also on the last Shadowing record. That's the keyboard. That's a sort of an upgrade in the Sonics, isn't there? Yeah. From uh, Linda's time, some songs. And it's because I got gifted this Kurzweil keyboard and uh, a Mac editing software thing and um, expensive mics and all this business from uh, Don Rally was his name, from the Squirrel Nut Zippers. Mm -hmm. And um, so everything from that point on... Uh, used all or some of these elements. I got rid of the Mac thing immediately. I didn't really get on with it, um, mm. but kept the Kurzweil and the mics. And uh, eventually, I threw the Kurzweil into the dumpster behind the apartment where I was living. Um, and was that because you were just done with it as a piece of equipment, or was it junked? No, it still worked perfectly. It was just um, uh, hearing a bit too much of it. Mm -hmm. uh, temptation, because it does so much. So uh, the only way to get rid of that was to uh, throw the thing away. <laughs> what What were some of the features of the Kurzweil that you were that were using? I mean, does it have? I'm trying to think now. Like, picture it. Did it have some? like sampling capabilities to yeah, it? Yeah, it's got thousands of samples available to you, and they're, they're, some of them are fairly tedious digital representation of instruments, but there were some textual ones, and it went into sort of a synthetic natural section of water and air and wind and blah, and so on. And so you could find fun things to use in there that didn't sound like uh, it was coming from an instrument. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the area I'd be living in more. Right. Uh, I think there was like 7,000 to 9,000 on the dial or something like that. And, you know, there were that many options within that. That might be a slight exaggeration, but plenty. Right, right. <laughs> that's too... Well, just knowing that you like to work within sort of a, a, con <laughs> a confined, limited set of options, that's too much for you, right? <laughs> Too, too, too many. much for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you all. I think I, I think it was mentioned in in, in the the liner notes as well. Was there? You recorded some stuff with Don Rally. Is that correct? I mean, I'm trying to think of you yeah. two working together with your backgrounds. What on earth did that sound like? Yeah, we made an album called Evolution together in Miami. Mm -hmm. um, there's a track. There's a track from it on. Um, uh, the uh, draining the vats tape, the pineapple tapes. Oh, okay. Um, there's something from it on there. But yeah, we recorded this whole album, and we were going to get uh, someone to put it out, but he and I sort of parted company and never really picked it up. Mm -hmm. 
So what you're telling me, Graham, is that you're a secret swing jazz player on the side. Is that what it is? At one point, that was rumored to be true. <laughs> well, I'll see if, if that ends up on the internet somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, as a music fan, another takeaway from the essays in the booklet that I, I really appreciated was just the mention of other albums or works that you took some inspiration from or that the individual writers were drawing parallels to. And one example was, you're quoted in Mark Harwood's write-up section about poem for voice and tape, that there was some inspiration taken from Robert Ashley's album for Sarah, Mencken, Christ, Beethoven, etc., and White House's early output. And I guess those two artists, now I know you're, you're, you're a fan of those two artists, but I just think of them in tandem. It never really occurred to me before with that, with your record, but now I listen to it and I'm like, that makes perfect sense. I get it. Um, but right. that particular Ashley piece, you know, had such a, just a torrent of language coming at you that you're, you know, you're almost left reeling as a listener. So I was just wondering if you were trying to kind of achieve similar results by kind of inverting that concept, like, you know, pulling it back to the, to, uh, slowing things down where all you're left is with these like feral phonetic blocks of sound. Yeah, I think w when you talk about like the torrent of uh, information in the voice, it wasn't that so much as the relentlessness of it, mm -hmm. and uh, just yeah, just uh, allowing something to uh, to change form over time, and you no longer hear it as a voice, and it does, like you said, become this feral. Um, other creature mm -hmm. that you're listening to, and multiple voices start to kind of be found within one voice, and uh, so it was that idea. Mm -hmm. Did you also at the time? I mean, it had me thinking of someone like uh, DJ Screw as well, like that slowed down, chopped and screwed style. Was that at all something that was on your radar at that time? I no, I actually haven't. I've never heard him. To oh, tell okay. you the truth. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because he was. I, I know of, who you're talking about. Right. He was I never. No, I never. Yeah. Well, on the poem album too, that was the first appearance of water sounds, which was definitely a recurring <laughs> a recurring theme. And I know I've talked to you about this in the past, but that was that was an element, and you said it was a bit of a tribute to Monique Darge's uh, piece "Rain," but that was something that you came back to quite a bit. I, I want to say on. Maybe all the first three solo records in this set was that just something that you felt formed a good backdrop to kind of play to play around with, for lack of a better word, like a good sonic backdrop. Like a, it would be like a curtain, yeah, mm -hmm. that you could uh, wrap around something else and um, and hold all the details and the information together. Mm -hmm. And it was variable, and it was convenient. Were most of the sounds, like, I know for the first album, those were recorded from your own, like, shower. Is that correct? I mean, were you... Yeah, were you... Uh, in the bathroom, uh, the, the shower and the sink. and the, the second one was... Most of those water sounds were recorded in an ornamental garden in uh, uh, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, at uh, Carla Barecki's parents' house. Uh David and Gloria. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so would you draw from those recordings over the years from for various yeah, albums? They're the, ones, they're the ones that ended up on Salmon Run and uh, Softly, Softly, Copy, Copy. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So jumping ahead to Salmon Run, you know, I was, I was kind of a tie-in here. I was kind of pleased to learn that there are segments of, of those recordings that appeared on Idea Fire Company's The Island of Taste, one of my yeah. favorite albums of theirs. You know, I'll have to kind of go back and listen more closely, but what do you know what particular tracks that those recordings appeared on in that album? Uh, I'm not a fan. I'll tell you the parts that were, it's the kind of sound of a radiator emptying and um, uh, windows being um, opened and closed and, and um, there's a, there's a, a thing with like fireworks or something is that section but it was it was uh, commissioned if you like by Scott for the out for the idea fire company album and he worked he worked it into the LP and then uh, I like the pieces as well so I use them for salmon run so mm-hmm. they they're on they're on both albums yeah and that is kind of a recurring theme I mean throughout this box that is there is a lot of like recycled recordings and stuff from different phases even leftover things from shadow rings uh recordings mm. is that right oh yeah yeah there's a lot of things that happen twice well i think for many folks one of the big draws of this box set is having salmon run back in print and and having it available on lp for the first time you know given that that was an album that was initially rejected by the label that <laughs> sought to release a solo album of yours have you been surprised by the sort of interest and in, in even influence that Salmon Run has garnered over the past decade and a half? Uh, yeah, it's it's done better in its afterlife than it did at the time, that's for sure. Because mm-hmm. um, I only made like 300 of them, and it took, it took a couple of years to get rid of them all. But um, it's nice to have it on vinyl. They had to... Uh, reshuffle the sequence to make it fit but it was fine mm-hmm. well um it's only two tracks were switched over and then the whole thing can be plated as a record um because the original one that you're talking about that was rejected i added the currency of dreams to it from uh draining the vets right which so, which uh, you've mentioned in the past was sort of a a breakthrough piece of music for you or a breakthrough in terms of just recording like that kind of did that guide how salmon run would eventually become yeah i had uh, other things from that same kind of cassette tape that uh, also ended up on the album but uh, the idea that you could stick them on the lp and they'd somehow seem like pieces of music mm-hmm. uh was it was uh the breakthrough I wanted to ask about the the classical music that uh, appears, you know, in the background of of that record. I mean, was there anything noteworthy about just those selections that appear? I mean, or was it to try to create that contrast of something really kind of beautiful, timeless, kind of juxtaposed against just this domestic, ruffling, laughing sound? I mean, was there anything about the... Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. It was just that was the appeal of it, the contrast. They were just things that I was listening to a lot at the time, and uh, it wasn't really contrived. It just happens that I was uh, focused on this type of music a lot in my listening time, 
and so that's all that shows up on the tapes. Yeah, the uh, very basic, often overly simplistic description of Salmon Run is that we are listening to someone listening, and I believe I've seen you respond to it in a few places, and I, and I apologize if I'm misquoting you, maybe this was somebody else, but it was something along the lines of, yeah, but I'm an unreliable listener. Um, oh, no, that's what you read from Lawrence's um, is that what it is? essay in the book. Okay. Well, yeah, I, he describes he described me as that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I kind of want to just like maybe like tease out that idea a little bit. I mean, is, is that something that you think translates to kind of what you were trying to achieve with Salmon Run? Like playing with this idea of who or what is being listened to? Not really. It's just me moving around the house listening to music and then taking that idea and uh, editing it and adding things to it. Okay. I never really had an not really have an agenda beyond that. Mm-hmm. But it's got this it's adopted this kind of life of its own of it uh afterwards. Mm-hmm. After the fact, you know. Yeah. And uh these may all these things may all be true, but they weren't they weren't uh, in my mind at the time. When you listen to Salmon Run, and, and here's where you can expect the hard-hitting questions from us here at uh, Free From Freakout, <laughs> do, <laughs> do you find yourself still laughing out loud when those moments appear where you're laughing? Because I say this as someone that every time I listen to The Currency of Dreams, I bust out laughing, even though I know it's coming. And people in my house, my wife included, will be like, what the hell? What are you doing? It would be like a hall of mirrors if I allowed myself to do that. <laughs> it doesn't have the same effect, huh? No, I chuckle sometimes, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, since I realize looking back on your uh, previous appearances here on the show, I, I never have played anything from Salmon Run before when you were on the show. Uh, I've done it on other week, weekly shows. So I thought what I'll do here in this first block of music is we'll play a couple of tracks. I'll play the Glinka Mix track and follow that up with Cement Spawn. So here again is Graham Lampkin from Salmon Run.
these uh albums on the solos box set have these like to me in my mind kind of a solid conceptual framework or maybe just this like set of sonic parameters that you're working within so i was kind of wondering if you know as you were transitioning from being in the shadow ring to creating solo work was it or maybe is it still important to you to have uh this established framework in place when you were approaching like the act of making an album do you need sort of like this mental picture of what it is or does some of this stuff just kind of crop up through hands-on recording and just editing practice I mean it's not like you're hanging out strumming a guitar here <laughs> you know like so I'm just wondering how that pro kind of a chicken in the egg question for you here but wondering how that works for you as you approach some of the solo stuff I usually hear uh hear an idea for an album in um you know, rough work. I made the, at that time. I was making a lot of recordings, just arbitrarily, just for pure curiosity to see what uh, happened. Um, and so I would find things in there, like uh, this the uh, salmon run thing you were talking about earlier. Um, I don't do that now, mm -hmm. um, but back then. And and uh, softly, softly, copy, copy was that was built by and large from uh, collage elements on these rough tapes, mm -hmm. um, like scrapbook, audio scrapbook. Right, material. right. Yeah, actually, I, I I brought that up because on those two uh, odds and ends Bandcamp compilations that you put out, there was that piece called Summer Tape Work that went back to the year 2001 and it, and it noted on there that there was material that was used for softly, softly, copy, copy. That's right. There's a big chunk of that on the second side, actually. Mm -hmm. it's a, from that's the complete tape. And that was made at the, um, at the uh, garden in uh, Johnstown. Mm -hmm. Did that one also feature some of the Tangerine Dream stuff or not? No, that was... Uh, the Tangerine Dream section was the kind of skeleton that runs up through each side, and then these other cassette tapes, that one, and there were numerous other ones that I drew from, were kind of placed on on about this uh, Tangerine Dream mm -hmm. structure. Well, another album that you mentioned uh, that you took some inspiration from with Softly, Softly, Copy, Copy was uh, Trevor Wishart's uh, Red Bird. A political right, prisoner's right. dream, yeah, and I, you know, I've yeah. heard several of his albums, but honestly, I hadn't heard that album before. So, naturally, I, I immediately had to buy it. And <laughs> just the other night, I was I was listening to this album, and man, what an incredible 
piece of music concrete. I mean, a great yeah. uh, piece of music. So I, first, I should just say thanks for bringing that to my attention. Oh, should have known. Yeah. And 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 you mentioned about that, like you really liked the movement of that album. How ideas sort of like came and went, but kept building forward. Is that is that accurate? Well, I really liked the way that the uh, the kind of the clip of the thing. He never really lets uh, one sound exist for very long before he either morphs it into something else or replaces it entirely. I really kind of the way the thing kind of tumbles through its sides I thought was really interesting mm -hmm. because normally with music concrete I would say there was more kind of emphasis on mood building and suspense and you know so on but to have this this other approach where it just feels like information being entered into a, a mill and being ground out to the same kind of gradient each throughout the whole thing mm -hmm. um uh, so I kind of wanted to observe a bit of that when putting softly, softly, copy, copy together. So these tapes um, turn through their moods and variations quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it also sort of reinforcing the idea that these are just scraps. It's nothing kind of long form. Yeah. In, uh, in their original state, anyway. Um, right. Well, I was going to say softly, softly, copy, copy holds, for me at least, kind of some special appeal because I think that was the first solo album of yours that I heard. I mean, I got that, I believe, before Salmon Run. I think I got Salmon Run from you, like, not too long after after that one. But I thought, you know, like, what makes this album special is that it does seem to be, like, a good meeting grounds for all the ideas for the albums that surround it. I mean, like, you can hear elements of poem in there you can hear elements of salmon run even things from later like amateur doubles it seemed like kind of a breakthrough in terms of like sound arrangement for you work, work, working on like a sidelong scale um i guess in terms of overall production do you see it in similar terms that it's, it is a good kind of like meeting grounds of things from this particular area of, or era of your work it's the big winner in this box. I think it's it was a record that was dying to come out on vinyl. I don't know why it, I never did it, but uh, to have it uh, to have it as an album now with its two sides really strengthened it. And I've had a lot of people say I never really liked that one too much before, but now I'm, now I'm hearing it on this thing. It's got a kind of a life of its own mm -hmm. uh, identity, whereas before I think it was a bit overlooked because it sat between two quite eccentric records and this one is less eccentric mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so this is this has brought it to life again yeah solos. yeah absolutely well i'm gonna play an excerpt from the copy copy piece like a side b where we hear samara lebelski's violin playing and right. i found her right up in the uh in the album liner notes rather amusing <laughs> because she notes that the, the track and the details that she was given about the recording project in no way sounded like, like the end results of what the album became. Right. So uh, was there a little bit of, uh, 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 I don't want to say manipulation, but did you have 
like this clear violin sound that you were after that you didn't think would be achieved if you just gave her like, hey, these are the backing tracks from this record? She was absolutely manipulated. <laughs> um, I wanted to, uh, I wanted her to give me a certain mood mm-hmm. um, to go against what I kind of foresaw as, as where I'd put her in the, in the track, um, but it would wouldn't be the mood if I gave her the, the let me try and say that bit again I wanted to uh, elicit an impression from her in her playing that wouldn't have matched wouldn't be the one I would want if she'd have heard the track that she was originally going to be placed on top of mm-hmm. so I gave her something else to listen to because I wanted her to I kind of predicted how she would respond to that and give me a sort of the, a piece of music which suited uh, my you know the contrast i was trying to build between her and the tape piece she's playing on top of right well you know these manipulation tactics graham kind of go back to the shadow ring too right you were toying with the the (laughs) lyrics and things that would (laughs) elicit a certain response from uh, darren right wasn't that kind of uh the nature of things at time in the later years there was some of that. It was uh, um, he knew what was going on. It wasn't uh, it wasn't crafty, right? right. But um, it was just fun ways to get a kind of uh, a little bit of character into his performance. Right, right. Well, we will call you a sound artist and sound manipulator, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and people can take that term however they like from here on out. <laughs> So let's play this excerpt here. So this is a piece from Copy, Copy from Graham Lampkin.
copy copy excerpt that we we just played uh you heard what i presume was the crying of of one of your sons <laughs> and on amateur doubles of course we can hear both of your boys kind of talking and, and playing in the background at various points so to me like this solos box it represents those years where you know you're a stay-at-home father and also how you found ways to remain creative and sort of adapt to producing new work within that context. So do you, I was going to ask, like, do you think your upbringing in Folkstone and maybe playing in a band like the Shadow Ring helped prepare you for this period of your life where you're sort of like <laughs> living off the grid? <laughs> you're not plugged into some hip... <laughs> Help. Prepare me for life. <laughs> Oh, um, I don't know if it taught me anything. Um, 
to be honest. <laughs> I suppose but e- eking out music from some very dark corners. <laughs> yeah. But it was also, uh, uh, it, to, to turn it back more seriously, like you were able to, like, you, you, again, going back to what we talked about earlier about having too many options, here you were sort of limited, um, but like ma- making the best of what you can with limited uh, means. Is that, that's a horrible, I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. I got down to the point where all I had was a dictaphone. Mm-hmm. A Walkman, you know. Every I got slowly got rid of everything, and so the only thing I had was a dictaphone for about uh, um, four years. Yeah. And now I don't have a record player or a CD player. I don't have any way to play music back. Um, no physical music objects. Um, yeah. So remo- the complete removal of music. You know. mm-hmm. And that doesn't bother you right now? No, no, I love it. Yeah? As someone... Yeah, no, it's all been by, it's been by design. Um, and uh, um, was, I'm trying to say the, um, what was the year, 2007? It's 2017. Haven't had a, a physical music object mm-hmm. or anything to play on. So, as someone who was a huge record collector back in the day, you've just kind of like ter- moved away from that, huh? It doesn't matter. Like having that physical object doesn't matter as much to you, obviously. Well, I stopped buying. I stopped buying records anyway. In the, well, uh, before the end of Kai, like three or four years before the end of Kai, I stopped buying music, mm-hmm. and um, so I was kind of preparing myself for that anyway. Yeah, lost lost interest in it mm-hmm. not just running it but just having it in my life right yeah. right being weighted down by it is that it part of like it felt, exactly it felt like a weight <laughs> that i didn't really need to carry yeah well as i look at my basement i'm beginning to feel that way more and more I know. <laughs> what am i gonna do with all this stuff so it ends up defining you yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in looking at, at all the photos from the amateur doubles recording road trip, um, and in mm-hmm. your mention of these sort of various stockpiles of recordings that you mention both here when we've been speaking and, and in the booklet that's in the box set, you know, it got me thinking that you're pretty diligent in documenting things and archiving your own work. Is that? pretty a fair assessment in terms of like have you kept a pretty good track of all these things of yours that you've amassed over the years uh yeah i've done okay unfortunately i lost some of the early shadowing era mm-hmm. documentation like i used to keep letters from everybody and local clippings from the newspaper some really interesting stuff uh was misplaced about a year ago mm-hmm. um, through no fault of my own, uh, so that's gone. But uh, otherwise, I've got uh, I've got stuff pretty well documented. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, with the amateur doubles album, you mentioned that you had kind of edited down those original French prog records. You know, if, if I'm not mistaken, kind of removing some of the more overtly proggy sections of them. But right. yeah, I was I was curious. You know, like 
did you whittle it down to what was essentially like what would fit on an album side or or what was the no i just cut the just cut the bits out that i liked so in the case of the philip granter record there's just that little section because the album itself isn't that interesting but Mm -hmm. uh, that one that one little section always caught my ear so i just needed that bit i didn't need the rest of the record Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and with the with the uh, poll thing uh, i think there's like several different parts throughout the record that end up on amateur doubles but uh, i haven't heard it since that day so i'm not i wouldn't be able to tell you the names of them yeah i don't know i've forgotten a lot about that record so that did the as you were out driving about did the full records play on or were these already like the modified versions that you were playing as you um, were uh well the first, first time it happened i would we were just listening to the whole thing all the way through and that's when i you know had my moment my epiphany <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so i went back and i restaged it and uh, then you know the, the record the recording playback is of an a, an already edited the previously edited version of those tracks yeah. right right well another one of these hard-hitting questions graham um <laughs> I think a lot of people are dying to know that, you know, was there a specific destination in mind for this recording road trip? I mean, you was it just we're getting in the car with the purpose of recording an album, or was it the Lambkins no, are heading um, off to get ice cream? No, we were going to uh, Trevor Zoo in Millbrook. Okay. Yeah, a little, a little zoo where they have um, bobcat. And, and wolf and owl and then they have lemurs <laughs> for people that like lemurs yeah and alpacas and um a red foxes uh rehabilitation center okay yeah these birds won't fly again so they go to uh trevor zoo yeah so this so was coming and going from there so this would be a means to like your young children were pretty well behaved because they had a, a place that they were looking forward to, huh? I never thought of that, but uh, yeah, maybe that pacified them. I'd, uh, yeah, I'd have to ask. <laughs> well, let's play an excerpt here. This is Amateur Doubles.
So I, I wanted to also discuss some of the, the more recent collaborative albums that you've had come out here in the past uh, year, year and a half. And one of those was the Live in the Bat Cave album with Joe McPhee and Charlie McPhee and your son, Oliver, his, his first album credit <laughs> that uh, Black <laughs> Truffle put out, even though he's appeared on other albums of yours, right? But That's right. Yeah, he's a veteran at this he, point. <laughs> but, you know, that... that that's a special record in, in, in that it captures just the pure fun of hanging out, listening to music, making some noise, probably having a few drinks and what else. Um, but, your, you know, your collaborations with Joe have been discussed in other places and well-documented. So I thought it might be worth just asking you uh, about Charlie because um, it may be some of the time that you spent with him because, sadly, not too long after this release, uh, came out, he passed away. Uh, so I'm just wondering right. if you could share maybe a fond memory that you have uh, of Charlie and spending time at his place, what he dubbed the Bat Cave. Uh, well, where to start? Endlessly generous would be a good place, I guess. <laughs> it made you feel um, more than at home. Uh, very gracious, funny, uh, great double act with Joe. Um, a wonderful guy, and uh, yeah, he passed of cancer last year. And was he? He was sort of, from my understanding, a big booster, like or a big fan of of music and and of Joe's work too. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, the back cave was kind of a museum to self. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, an archive of of Joe's life, really. Well, their brother's life, but Joe, as Joe's life went in a different direction, he's uh, remembered through um, cuttings from newspapers and uh, posters from different periods of his career and uh, candid pictures of people visiting the Batcave, uh, all all gathered on, on the walls of the place. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that's where... Uh, that would be the hangout place most likely. <laughs> that was the Poughkeepsie hangout place for you? Mostly. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than the, like the local bar, you would go to the Bat Cave? No, I never really went to the local bar. There was a time for about a year when I tried to be uh, you know, a face, but uh, I, wasn't, I didn't get enough out of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that, that time in, in Poughkeepsie and, and your work with Joe, I, I know you and I have talked about this in the past where initially you did not like live performance at all, but gradually you got sort of a, you became interested in it and you appreciated doing it. Was it really through kind of your work and collaboration with Joe that, that kind of led you in that direction? Um, it didn't hurt it. Mm-hmm. The idea of doing live uh, improvisations was uh, not something I'd explored until then. Normally, the, the the live shows would be less frequent and based more on kind of uh, really some uh, preparation in the in the sound mix. Is that something that you've uh, have you missed doing that all in the last year and a half? No, no, not at all. Um, <laughs> I did uh, a, a video stream for Cafe Otto over Christmas, mm-hmm. um, so I was in I was in there on my own at the piano, um, 
there was a small audience, but yeah, that's the closest I got this year. Right. Well, more recently, you also put out your first collaborative album with Bill Nace under the name The Dishwashers, or just as di- The Dishwashers. And I remember seeing the the images of you two performing at Cropped Out, where you were both playing acoustic guitars, seated behind these sheets of clear plastic, which I guess now has me thinking like it was foreshadowing the world of live performance uh, post-pandemic here. <laughs> The the prescient dishwasher set, <laughs> but uh, uh, was it fun for you to develop that live performance into a recording and make what I'm going to very loosely describe as your guitar album? Well, it wasn't other than the fact that we sampled um, a small section of the live show on the record. They had nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. Um. Bill was over here, and uh, we wanted to give him like a London, put him in a London environment, and uh, so we came here and uh, we just tried out different things for two days, and then edited the best bits together. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it's just, just uh, really basic experiments, things like trying to play the same instrument together at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, or, um, you know, we'd both have one object and, uh, you know, follow very simple instruction. Um, and then, yeah, it was just uh, left to me to, to weave the, the, mm-hmm. the music into, into form. Is that, a, is that a collaboration that you could see continuing on or is this more of just a one-off thing? No, if, if I could get together with him again... I wouldn't want to do something through the through the mail, so to speak. But uh, yeah, I like I like working with Bill. It was a fun record to make. Yeah, yeah, he's quite a versatile player. I mean, uh, the the different collaborations he's involved in, I'm always impressed. So when I first saw that you two were playing together, I was a little bit shocked. Like, so how did, how did that connection come about for Cropped Out? Um. I'd met him socially a few times over the years before then, but never really kind of knew him or anything. Um, and I think we were just offered it and thought, why not? Because mm-hmm. it's on paper, it seems so unlikely and uh, doomed to failure. But uh, <laughs> we found uh, we found more common ground than differences. Mm-hmm. We found enough differences that there was friction, and you know that generates a nice idea sometimes. But uh, no, we got on quite well immediately. Right, right. Well, I thought here to to wrap up our our time, I, I wanted to ask you a couple things about maybe first, like the the status of the the Shadow Ring reissues or archival project. And I had Lawrence from Blank Forms on the show last summer, and and he de- he discussed that there were some plans to reissue the Shadow Rings back catalog. So I was just kind of wondering. The approach to that is it going to be along similar lines to this new solos box set, or are you working more towards, uh, you know, individual releases or breaking it into specific periods of the group? Uh, well, as of now, we're we're looking at uh, how to format it, but it's likely just going to be everything the straight from uh, the Cat and Bell stuff all the way through oh. to the end of the line, um, and then there'll be uh, a large generous book with uh, you know it'll be like the solos in that respect there'll be essays about different records and okay 
opinion and overview and there'll be things from the archive, visual things that people have been sending in or that I already had and yeah, it'll be nice. It, it's it, take a while to come together. Yeah. Is this going to be a CD box set or an LP box set? A CD and then I think there'll be an option to do some of them as albums afterwards. Because okay. I was thinking if this is an LP box set, the thing's going to weigh 50 pounds, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, it's just, it'd be ridiculous. <laughs> Shipping that one around. One of the, the reasons why. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Well, do you have any, I know it's hard to talk about future plans because we know that there's just so many limitations right now, but any other, to wrap up, any other things you can mention about projects or other things you have in the works in the months ahead? Uh, well, I'm putting, uh, I'm, uh, oh, what's the thing called? No, I'll ask, I'll ask that again. Oh, there's the yeah. I was going to write the book, wasn't I? That's what it's called. So I'm trying to remember what they called it in the end. I kind of like still thinking about the title, so I don't mm-hmm. want to say something. That's oh, true. really? Uh, uh, or maybe I just well, I'll leave that and just describe it as a book yeah. because I'm not really sure what to call it yet. So I don't want to. I don't want to say something and then I change my mind. So I just <laughs> say. Uh, <laughs> there's a book. There's a book coming out. That's right. There's a book coming out. Of... <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's a book coming out of writing I've been doing over the last uh, three or four years in, here in London. And uh, Mark's going to do it on Penultimate Press. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll hopefully have that out in the summertime. Okay, yeah. And is this along similar lines to like the... Uh, came to call mine both visual work and writing or just straight writing no it's mainly just writing there's some long longer things uh, in there too and there'll be uh, a couple of uh, uh, visual panels throughout it but it's mainly just to break up the text okay F- uh, fiction yeah. I'm assuming more like fictional work or <laughs> well a mix of autobiography and fiction Okay, got it, got it. <laughs> You've just got to, yeah, figure out which is which. <laughs> yeah, you're not telling, it's not, yeah, it's not auto, purely autobiography, huh? Duly, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Graham, we're going to wrap up here, uh, this block of music, with some of those projects we just discussed with uh, yeah. Joe McPhee and you and Charlie, and then followed up with the dishwashers. But as always, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, David. It's been fun.
That tells us how you play a front row, but it's not. It's not like slides. It's finding the positions on the front row. I'm really getting drunk. I'm getting blasted. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. If loving you is wrong, the lid fell on the floor.
going to bring things to an end for this installment of the show. I want to thank Graham once again for taking the time to speak with me this week. If you'd like to check out the complete playlist for this show, you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that will bring you to each of the releases played. Graham's solo box set is available to order now from Blank Forms. You can also grab some of the other tracks played through Graham's Bandcamp page. If you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another new episode. Until then, thanks so much for listening.